0: right, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 9. The title to our message this morning is, Who Will Inherit the Earth? And as you're turning there, uh, please remember that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Exodus chapter 3, starting in... Verse 7, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezerites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning and ask that you would help us to come into your presence as Mary did. Oh, it's so easy, Lord, with the other six days a week, Lord, to be distracted with many things, even many good things, like Martha was, but Lord, Mary sat at your feet, at your son's feet, and she chose the good portion, and your son said that that would not be taken away from her, so Lord, draw us into your presence this morning. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. I imagine that some of us, as we started the book of Exodus, um, we thought, oh, I guess we're not going to be looking at Jesus and hearing about the gospel for a while until we get back to the New Testament. I think that's how a lot of us approach uh, the Old Testament, and that's that's really too bad. Part of it is just because we haven't been trained how to to read it, how to understand it. Uh, the Old Testament is full of types. Please turn with me to First Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul teaches us how to understand, the very passages that we are reading. We looked at this passage briefly last week. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is pointing back to the Exodus account that we are going over, and he's telling us how to interpret it, how to understand it. So in verses 1 through 5, he tells us of Israel's departure from Egypt and that Christ, the rock, was going with them. And look at verse 5 now. Now, these things took place as examples for us. Tupas in the Greek. It means type. And he repeats that same word in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Now, these things, the things that happened to Israel, happened to them as an example. Tupas, as a type. So, what is a type? Well, a type is a person or a thing that foreshadows another person or thing. Type is a person or thing that foreshadows another person or thing. So when we get to the book of Hebrews, uh, we see that the ceremonial law was full of types, those sacrifices that pointed toward the ultimate sacrifice, Christ. So the Passover lamb, for example, is a type with the anti-type, the fulfillment, being Jesus, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. But it's not only Israel's ceremonies that are full of types, Israel's history is full of types, as Paul is teaching us in 1 Corinthians 10, and especially of the Exodus account. So those three verses that we just read, we're tempted to think that these These Canaanites, these Hittites, these Amorites, all of these ites have nothing to do with us today. That the promised land that was given to Israel has nothing to do with us. But we would be wrong. Those things are types. They are unfolding truths. There are Canaanites in the land today. And God, through Christ, has promised to dispossess them and to bring true Israel, the elect of God, into the possession of that land. And our promised land is nothing less than the world itself. It's what Paul tells us in Romans 4.13, that Abraham's offspring, that's every true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, will inherit the whole world. So here's our big idea. I know it's not in your bulletin, so I'll read it slowly. Just as the Lord took the land from the Canaanites and gave it to Israel, so Christ is taking the world away from the wicked and giving it to his people. One more time. Just as the Lord took the land from the Canaanites and he gave it to Israel, so Christ is taking the world away from the wicked and giving it to his people. If you missed that, we'll come back to it in our doctrine section. You can have another opportunity to write it down. So let's reorient ourselves in the Exodus account. In chapter 3, verse 1, Moses is shepherding his father-in-law's flock. He's 80 years old, and he's been living in Midian now for 40 years, 40 years apart from his people, and and it... those, those, that timetable is really important to, to absorb. Many Christians lose heart today and start to disbelieve the promises of God because it seems so long in those promises being fulfilled. Um, beloved, we have to remember that God's ways are not our ways. Um, when God promised Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would come and crush the seed of the serpent, it was 4,000 years before Christ came, born of a virgin Mary. God sent his, uh, forth his son in the fullness of time. So we must trust that God will appear at just the right time, and that's what we find God doing here in Exodus 3. He appears, the angel Lord, the preincarnate Christ, appears at just the right time to deliver his people. So beginning in verse 7, The Lord speaks to Moses. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. As we saw from last week, this is such tender love on the part of Christ because Israel is absolutely full of hypocrisy. They hated Egypt's slavery, but they loved Egypt's gods. Go back and read Ezekiel 20. You'll see that during this very time, as Israel's crying out to, for deliverance, they're worshiping the gods of Egypt. I mean, it'd be a bit like a woman asking her husband to protect her from getting beaten up from the other man that she's sleeping with. Um, please stop him from beating me up so that I can continue to sleep with him. That's the prayers that Israel was essentially offering up to God at this point. And yet God heard them, not because they were worthy, but because he is a covenant-keeping, faithful, tender, merciful God. Now, verse 7 is essentially repeated in verse nine, except for in reverse order. Verse seven is repeated in verse nine, except for it's in reverse order. And in scripture, this is called a chiasm or a chiastic structure. A chiasm is essentially a sequence of ideas um, that is presented and then it's repeated in reverse order. So in verse seven, the Lord says, I've surely seen, I've heard their cry, And then in verse 9, the order is reversed. Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen their oppression. So there's an emphasis that's going on here, but what's helpful about these chiastic structures is it points to the central idea of the text, because what's in the middle? Well, verse 8 is, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So that's our central idea. Look how verse 8 begins. I have come down to deliver them. Who is the deliverer in the book of Exodus? It's the angel of the Lord, it's Christ himself. Moses is is merely an instrument in the hands of Christ. Yes, Christ is going to commission him in verse 10. But he, Christ, is the source. And the Lord isn't merely going to deliver them from Egypt. In in the economy of salvation, when, when Christ saves, he always saves from something to something. From something to something. Colossians 1.13 says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. The Lord was bringing them out of Egypt and delivering them to the promised land. Do you know why it's called the promised land? Actually, we just read it last week in our, New Test- in our Old Testament reading. Um, God promised to give this very land to Abraham 430 years earlier in Genesis chapter 15. So notice that this land is described in three different ways. First, he says, I will bring you to a good and broad land. Um, Good in scripture expresses the transfer of happiness Uh, When Paul was preaching to the Lystrans in Acts chapter 14, he says that God did good to them by giving them rains and fruitful seasons and satisfying their hearts and giving them gladness. So them being glad in their hearts was described as God's goodness. So this land that he's giving them will bring them happiness. And it's called a broad land meaning it's going to be a big enough land to fulfill that promise that God had said that they're going to multiply as many as the stars in the sky and as much as the the sand on the seashore. Secondly, he describes this land as a land flowing with milk and honey. I think this is repeated something like 23 times in the Bible, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the first place that it's mentioned. So boys and girls... What do you need to have milk? Don't don't say refrigerator. Don't say Winco. Um, what do you need to have milk? You need cows. You need livestock. Uh, so so goats can give milk. Sheep can give milk. Camels can give milk. Um, what do you need for those animals to live? Yeah, you need lush green pastures. You need rain. You need Fertile soil. What do you need for honey? Bees. And lots of them, right? What do you need for bees to make honey? Flowers. Flowers, Fruit trees. So this land was going to be flowing with lush, fertile soil, rain, fruit trees, flowers, it was going to be full, overflowing, gushing with prosperity and wealth, and plus they get the milk and the honey. Uh, my favorite coffee is called Promised Land Coffee. Get the whipping, heavy whipping cream and honey. It's the best. Promised Land Coffee. Now, um, we take for granted those things like milk and honey because we can just go to Albertsons and pick them up on the shelf, um, but they only exist because of God's blessing. If God were to turn off the rain, those luxury items like milk and honey would absolutely disappear. And God is telling Israel that I'm going to bring you into this land that I'm going to bless so much that it's going to be gushing forth with milk and honey. And thirdly, he tells them that this is the land of the ites. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezerites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now, who are these people and why is it important? Let's turn to Genesis chapter 9. It's been really helpful reading Genesis before we come up here and start doing Exodus because the Bible builds on itself. It's not a collection of disorganized stories. Here we find in Genesis 9 the origin of the Canaanites. When Noah left the ark, his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, repopulated the earth. But, One of Ham's sons, named Canaan, was cursed by Noah. And by extension, his whole tribe, the Canaanites, were cursed. So look at verse 25 of chapter 9. Noah tells him, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Why were the Canaanites cursed? Well, look at. Look at verse 20. This happened when Noah got off the ark. It says that Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and he became drunk and he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, I think this is veiled language. I I don't think that Moses is simply reporting that Ham walked by the tent and saw his dad naked and giggled, and, and because of that, this curse came down. I don't think that's what's being said at all. I actually believe, as well as some other Bible teachers, that this is a cryptic way of saying that Ham had an incestuous relationship with his mother while his dad was asleep. In uh, this, this phrase, the nakedness of the father, it refers elsewhere in Scripture to the nakedness of the mother. Uh, Leviticus. You can jot this down. Leviticus 18, 7. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Miles Van Pelt says here that this language um, in Genesis 9, it's a euphemism for maternal incest. And this also suggests Canaan, who is Ham's fourth son, was the result of the illicit counter and explains why only Canaan was cursed by Noah. It wasn't all of his sons. It was just one of his sons. Of course, the point here is not whether this um, is is precisely what happened. The point is, is that the seed of the serpent survived the flood. The flood came on the earth because the wickedness grew. And guess what happened after the rains went down? The sea of the serpent is still there. Now, if you look just one chapter over in Genesis 10, the, Genesis 10 is called the table of nations. It's because we find every nation and its origin here. So here we see the lineage of Canaan, the cursed son of Ham. In verse 6, it says, The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. So who were, who were the sons of Canaan? These other ites mentioned in Exodus 3. Well, look at verse 15. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. Heth was the father of the Hittites. And the Jebusites, one of the groups in the list, the Amorites, the Girgashites, and the Hivites. Now, the only group that's missing here is the Pezerites, but in Genesis 15, we read that that group lived in the land of Canaan. They were descendants of Canaan also. So all these nations mentioned in Exodus 3 belong to that cursed seed. So now let's, let's turn back to Exodus chapter 3. When God is giving Israel this land, In verse 8, he is simultaneously taking it from these other nations. And no doubt uh, many of the progressives today would call God an imperialist for such um, actions. Why would God do this? Why would God take away the land from the Canaanites and give it to Israel? Well, there's, there's three reasons. Number one... Because the Lord is God over the nations. The Lord is God over the nations. In Deuteronomy 32, 8, it says, The Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. He, he divided mankind. He fixed the borders of the people. So everything in the world, the land, the rivers, the seas, the mountains, the plains, they do not ultimately belong to man. They belong to God, and he has the right to give them to whomever he will." This is important as we're going through the book of Exodus. Exodus is not primarily a book about your your quiet time with God. Exodus is a book about the nations, about nation crushing and nation building. And God is the one that is shifting all the parts around on the board. So that's the first reason that God can take away the land from the Canaanites and give it to whoever he will, because he is God. The second reason is that the Canaanites had been unfaithful to God. Um, They were involved in every single abominable practice. Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 11, they burned their children in the fire. They practiced divination. They inquired of the dead. Deuteronomy 29, 17, they worshiped idols of wood and and stone, and silver, and gold. Leviticus 18, 20, and 22, they committed adultery, homosexuality, they gave their children to Moloch. Psalm 106, 37, they served demons. The Lord told Israel, in Leviticus 18, all these nations I'm driving out before you, they have become unclean. The land has become unclean, and I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. So that's the second reason that God took the land away from the Canaanites, because they had been unfaithful to God. The third reason that God took the land away from the Canaanites and gave it to Israel is because this is a type of all of human history. This is a type of all of human history. This giving of the promised land to Israel foreshadows Christ giving the whole world to his people. And that brings us then to our doctrine this morning. Just as the Lord took the land from the Canaanites and gave it to Israel, so Christ is taking the world away from the wicked and giving it to his people. In Exodus 3, we read that Israel was promised the land. In the whole Bible, we read that the church has promised the whole world. So consider three proofs of this promise in Scripture. Proof number one, this promise is in the Bible's songbook. This promise is in the Bible's songbook. Please turn with me to Psalm chapter 37. Now if you see the little subscript at the beginning of the psalm, it says that it was written by David which means that this psalm was written 400 years after Israel took possession of the promised land. And yet, five times in this psalm, we see this ongoing promise of God casting the wicked out of the land and giving it to the righteous. So look with me at verse 9. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Verses 10 and 11. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Verse 22. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. End of verse 28. The children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. And then verse 34. Wait for the Lord, keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land, and you will look on it when the wicked are cut off. Now, note that this promise was embedded in the very songs that Israel sang 400 years after they already received the promised land. This is already hinting in the Old Testament at something greater. Proof number two, this promise is in the Sermon on the Mount. Proof number two, this promise is on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, Verse 5. This promise is in one of the Beatitudes. We read Jesus saying, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And that word meek is is widely misunderstood. The classical Greek word, um, it it just points to the, the breaking of a horse. Um, The the taming of a horse. And so the meek uh, are are not the people of the earth who are the doormat. The the meek are the people who have been broken and tamed by Jesus Christ. So as opposed to the unregenerate man who is like the sea, tossed to and fro, untamed and wild and wicked. The tamed of God are the ones who will inherit the earth. And Jesus, hopefully you'll notice, he's quoting Psalm 37. Uh, David said that God's people will inherit the land, but Jesus is expanding the promise. David said the land. Jesus here says that we will inherit the earth. And what we find in scripture is that there's this progressive expansion of land promises. In the beginning, what what did Adam get? got a garden. What did the people of Israel get? They got a country. What does the new covenant church get? The world. Promise number 3. We see this promise attached to justification by faith. This promise is attached to justification by faith. Please turn with me to Romans 4:13. Paul is right in the middle of his his, uh, chapter on justification by faith alone, that we're not justified by the law, by the works of the law, but by faith alone. And all the promises of God come by faith alone. And Paul says in verse 13 of Romans 4, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Do you see what he's saying here? Paul is vindicating the doctrine that we're we're laying out, that Abraham and his offspring, those who believe in Christ, were promised the whole world. Well, where does it say that in the Old Testament? Paul is interpreting it for us. Um, Israel inherited the, the promised land. That was the type, and Christians... Uh, inheriting the world is the anti-type. So when when the Christ of the burning bush is telling Moses in Exodus 3 that he was giving them the land of Canaan, it's typological of Christians gaining the whole world. This this verse is definitive proof that the promised land prom, uh, uh, points to something greater for us. So that's our doctrine. Just as the Lord took the land from the Canaanites and gave it to Israel, so Christ is taking the world away from the wicked and giving it to his people. So let's look now then at our duty. And Our first duty is to simply change our mind about the world. Change our mind about the world. We we need a paradigm shift when we're thinking about the world. Much of evangelicalism today is, is still Gnostic. We, we looked at Gnosticism in the book of 1 Corinthians. We talked about it voluminously. Um, remember, Gnosticism teaches that the spiritual world is good and that the physical world is, is dirty at best and, and bad and not to be desired at worst. This is not just an ancient problem. It's a problem that we have today. It's a modern problem. During the the French Revolution, um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, 1712 to 1778, he spoke about kind of the Gnosticism inherent in Christianity. Now, Rousseau was wrong about Christianity being Gnostic, but he was right about Christians being Gnostic. Listen to what he says. Christianity as a religion is entirely spiritual, occupied solely with heavenly things. The country of the Christian is not of this world. It matters little to him whether things go well or ill here on earth, End quote. Now, um... I grew up singing Rousseau in the church. Perhaps some of you did. Do you recognize this song? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. By the way, if you ever sing this song, you're fired, okay? Um, The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Anybody sing that song? Me too. The tune is just catchy enough to make that Gnosticism go deeper. Now, let's clarify. Um, Christians ought not to feel at home in the world if we consider the world from the angle of the world system in rebellion to God. We should never feel at home in the rebellion of the world. That world system, 1 John five nineteen says, lies in the power of the evil one. Cosmos, the word for world in scripture, it has multiple different meanings. What has suddenly happened is that we have uh, conflated that idea of the world's evil system, the world, the cosmos, and we've conflated that with the material world. And we've made them one thing, So we become functional Gnostics. We sing things like, the world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And inadvertently, we're giving up the farm with that. Imagine for a moment if if Christ is telling Moses at the burning bush, Moses, I'm going to give you the promised land. And Moses starts to channel his inner Rousseau, and he says something like, what does it matter if? We are free men or slaves. The essential thing is that we get to heaven. God, this world is not our home. We're content to resign ourselves to this veil of sorrows until you take us away. That would be pretty bizarre, wouldn't it? But is that your view of the world? That's a form of Gnosticism. One author says here that God didn't create the world simply to take people to heaven. Nor did Jesus die and rise again simply so that he could redeem our individual souls, as precious as that is. When Adam fell into sin, what happened? Not only did individual souls um, fall under the corruption of sin, but what else fell under the corruption of sin? The whole world did. Um, The physical world, the spiritual world, the heavens and the earth, individuals and nations came under the curse of sin. And when Jesus came into the world, um, just like when he came down to Moses in the burning bush, he came to change everything. Here's the vital principle. Redemption must be as comprehensive as sin is. Redemption must be as comprehensive as sin is. I mean, children, this is not difficult. If someone stole $5 from you, would it be adequate if they paid you back $2? No. No. The restitution must meet the the crime. Whatever Adam lost by sin, Christ, the second Adam, he's restoring. So what did Adam lose? Adam lost our souls by his sin, and he lost the whole world. And that's precisely what Christ is restoring. And you can see a picture of this restoration in verse 8 in our passage. So look there again. The first part of the verse, Christ tells Moses that he's going to deliver them from slavery. So here's the parallel for you, beloved. Beloved, you have been delivered from the power and from the penalty of sin through the risen and reigning Christ. In the second part of the verse, Christ tells Moses that he's going to give the land of the Canaanites to Israel. So here's the parallel for you. Christ is giving us the world. This is no longer Satan's world. Christ took the land from the Canaanites of old. He gave it to Israel. And so Christ now is giving the world to the saints. Somebody might say here, uh, but Josh, this giving of the world that you've been talking about, um, this is speaking about the eternal state. It's talking about the final consummation of the new heavens and the new earth. We don't get the world in history. We only get the world in eternity. Now, um, to be sure, it's 100% true that the ultimate fulfillment of this giving of the world is the new heavens and the new earth, and this will be the greatest, the best, the perfect fulfillment of God's promise to us. It's what all of us are ultimately looking forward to. On the new earth, at that time, all evil will be cast into the lake of fire. Um, There will be no Canaanites left except for Canaanites like you and me who have been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. We will all eat from the tree of life. We'll see the face of Jesus Christ will no longer need sun because the light that's coming from him will be the light that we all will ever love and need in in glory. And we will reign with him forever and ever. But, that doesn't mean we don't get the world in history as well. The earth belongs to Christ's people right now. Right now it does. It doesn't belong to Satan or to modern day Canaanites. How can I say that? Because Satan lost his authority over the world at the cross. Jesus, in John chapter 12, verse 31, he says, now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be Cast out. And, and since his ascension, Jesus is not up in heaven like twiddling his thumbs. He's not in a boxing match waiting for the bell to ring for him to come back in. He's in the ring and he's currently putting all of his enemies under his feet. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty five says that he must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. Our problem today is that we often judge things on our own timetable. We're tempted to think, well, I've been alive 44 years. Things don't look like they're getting better. In fact, in many places, things look like they're getting worse. And and we judge God's redemptive work through the small little lens of our lifetimes. We have to remember, Moses was 80 years old. What did it look like was going to happen when he was 80 years old? It looked like it was finished. The promise um, to Abraham was 430 years old before it was fulfilled. The promise that the seed of the woman would come into the world was 4,000 years old before Christ came into the world. God doesn't work on our timetable, but he always fulfills his promises. The world in history will belong to God's people. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So that's our duty. We need to change our minds about the way that we think about the world. First, by refusing to be Gnostic in our thinking. Um, God did not create the world simply to take us to heaven. And then secondly, we must remember that Christ has redeemed as far as the curse is found. I love Christmas. We're about to sing that song. As far as the curse is found. He's redeemed our souls and he's redeeming the world. So let's look finally then at our delight. I was speaking in Twin Falls yesterday. And one of the pastors spoke, uh, apparently this Happens where he was from, I'm sure it happens all over the United States. One of the, he was talking about the type of Christian who interprets everything through the lens or through the glasses of the world. The type of Christian who is is just constantly feeding off of Fox News. And this type of Christian, what happens is they get angrier and angrier, and they live in a constant state of, of rage. What's the problem with that type of Christian? Well, he's looking at the world through a particular set of glasses. Children, boys and girls, have you ever watched a 3D movie before with the glasses? Yeah, those are pretty cool. What happens if you take the glasses off? It doesn't work, right? The the movie looks funny. It doesn't look like it's supposed to look. You need the glasses, the lenses, to be able to view the, the show right. And the the point is here is that it matters what pair of glasses that we look at the world through. Um, Do you you want to live in a constant state of rage? Does that bring fulfillment and joy and happiness in your life? When God told Moses that he was going to give him the promised land, Moses put those glasses on. Moses had other problems. He, he doubted his own calling, but he didn't doubt the promise that God was giving them, the promised land, and ultimately it allowed Moses to storm into the palace of Pharaoh and be an instrument in redeeming and setting God's people free. The glasses that we wear, they matter. So what, what glasses are you looking at the world through? God guaranteed that, that Moses would have success before he ever entered into Egypt. And the same thing is true about us. Do you realize that before you were ever even born, that Christ has guaranteed you success? We will inherit the world, both in history and in eternity, because they both belong to the kingdom of our Lord. John said in Revelation eleven fifteen, 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So loved ones, examine the glasses that you're looking at the world through. Are the glasses that you're using, are they making you to walk around in a rage? Or, or can, can you do this? Can you look at the world through those glasses and laugh and wonder that because Christ has delivered your soul from sin, you are a free man and you're a free woman and now this world belongs to you. And now you can go out into the promised land and know that you're going to have success. The Canaanites that you are encountering they will either come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ or they will be put under Christ's feet. And perhaps you're here this morning and you're a Canaanite. Maybe you're one of God's enemies. Maybe you have have or are committing those sins that we had mentioned earlier. Here's the good news. You don't have to be cut off. Not all of them were. Uh, King David, one of his mighty men, his name was Uriah the Hittite. He was one of the descendants of Canaan, and he was included into God's people, and he was loved by God. And that can be for you too today. It doesn't matter what sins that you've committed. It doesn't matter how dirty and filthy and ashamed you are. You can be washed and sanctified and justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. It's just faith and repentance that's required that you would turn away from trying to work the works of the law by trying to be a good person, by by trying to be better than your neighbor. You recognize that what you deserve is sin and hell. And then you look to Jesus, the Son of God, who made satisfaction for sinners just like you. And you cling to him and you trust in him and you receive him as your Lord and Savior. The promise for every Canaanite is this, is that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. You could be a child of God today by resting and receiving the Christ of the burning bush. Let's pray. pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that this word in the book of Exodus is so relevant for our lives. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to have our theology go from our heads down to our hearts and out into our fingertips. Lord, help us to not be Gnostics in our thinking. Help us to love the material world as you made it. That we would go home with our families. That we would disciple them and love them in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we do this in our places of business as you give us freedom. That we do this in the public square as you give us freedom. That our whole lives would be Wearing those glasses of, of knowing that, Lord, you have given us the world. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.